0: You can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 19, John chapter 19 once again. This morning we will, Lord willing, cover verses 31 through 37 of John chapter 19. So I'll ask you if you're able at this time to stand with me and we'll read verses 31 through 37 and then pray and begin. John chapter 19 beginning in verse 31. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, I'll ask you to bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, O Lord, I come to you now in the name of your Son. Father, I come to you in his blessed name, the one set before us here even in his death, even after having given up his spirit. O Lord, he's speaking to us through his servant, John. Lord, I pray that this text set before us would have its intended purpose in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would shut my mouth if I would misspeak in any way. And yet, O God, I do pray for authority and power from on high. Lord, arrest our souls and captivate our affections. Let our hearts be so singularly focused on Your Son that we can think of nothing else. Lord, I pray that we would have our broken hearts mended by His. Let us see glory in the cross of Christ. Father, I pray that You would direct our hearts and minds through these things, stir us up and equip us, challenge us and convict us. O Lord, I pray that You would have Your way with Your people now. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this message is A Broken Heart. A Broken Heart. And I hope and trust that we will see exactly why it is titled in that way. It's been a week, over a week, since we were in John's Gospel. We took a week off the last week whenever we had our conference and heard some wonderful messages. But just to refresh your memory, we've been considering the crucifixion of Jesus. We saw His trials, unjust trials by wicked men. We saw where He took and drug His own crossbeam out of town. We saw where they nailed Him to the cross and lifted Him up on it. We saw Him agonizing under the wrath of man and God simultaneously and asking for a drink, crying out, I thirst, having His thirst quenched. And the last thing we looked at was where Jesus declared, It is finished. And we saw in verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, it is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. And so what we're considering today is unequivocally after the death of Jesus. He is no longer living as He's on this cross. And what we're looking at is the certainty of His death and what John has preserved and recorded by the Holy Spirit for us to see. And so we begin in verse 31 in light of all those things, we move into verse 31, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. This verse 31 gives us two contrasted realities, two primary emphases that are made here one, the first one we'll consider is the irony of what's going on here. The second is the hypocrisy of what's going on here. So let's consider first the irony. The irony of this expression that it's the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross because it's the Sabbath and it was a high day. Here's the irony is that this day of preparation, this high Sabbath day would be the day leading up to this high Sabbath in which the Jews would be tending to all the things that needed to be done, which could not be done on the Sabbath. They were to be preparing for the Sabbath. You'll recall an illustration of this. When the Sabbath was originally given in the Old Testament in Exodus 16, you'll remember that God told them, on the sixth day you go out and do what? You gather up double portions of what you're going to gather so that you're not working on this seventh day on the Sabbath. This day of preparation, like unto that first one, was a day when they were to be preparing themselves, preparing their food, doing all the things required so that they could observe their Sabbath without defiling it, without working, and without having to go and make themselves unclean. And so here's the irony. They're preparing for the Sabbath. In the context, they're seeking to avoid having to leave these stinking dead corpses hanging on these crosses during their high Sabbath. Or at least... That was their argument. That was their explanation. That's what they meant by having these legs broken so that they don't remain on the cross on the Sabbath. Here's the idea. That these dead corpses would have been unclean and would have defiled them. Here, right outside Jerusalem, you've got these stinking corpses. And they weren't dead yet, and they wanted to guarantee that these people would be dead so they weren't forced to have to either leave them there or tend to them during their high Sabbath day. Now, the irony in all of this is, that they're striving to prepare for the Sabbath all the while completely blind to the Lord of the Sabbath whom they had just crucified. Here's the irony in this. And before we jump even further into our exposition, let me ask you this. Stop for a second and consider what does it really mean to keep the Sabbath? What was the Sabbath always about throughout all the Old Testament scriptures? And my question for us all is, have We, have you come to find rest in Jesus Christ. Here's the irony. We've got to do all this, make these special arrangements so that we can observe this Sabbath, this rest, this day of rest, all the while ignoring Jesus Himself. Without going through the full scope of the context, I want to read something for you. Because it's not John's primary point here in John 19. This is more background information which is telling us their argument and why they wanted these people to be taken off the cross. But let's consider what the fulfillment of this is, and it's going to be very important. Hebrews chapter 4, just turn there with me for a moment. Hebrews chapter 4, we want to know, what does it mean? If I were to, if someone were to ask you, someone were to come up to you as a Christian and say, are you obeying God as it relates to the fourth commandment? Are you honoring the Sabbath and keeping it holy? Are you observing the Sabbath? What would you say? How is it that you think that that's being fulfilled in your life as it relates to righteousness? These people thought the way they were supposed to do it was all their work and all their preparation so that they could take this day, all the while lording it over everybody else, but we won't get into that. Take this day and establish themselves as righteous by it. Well, what is the true fulfillment? What does it mean to actually keep the Sabbath? Hebrews chapter 4, begin reading in verse 1 with me. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest." As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, Again, He appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from His works as God did from His. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So what is the author to the Hebrews saying? There's this rest. They didn't enter that rest through Joshua. There was a further rest required, a further spiritual rest needed. What was it? Again, we read verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest. And again, whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from His works as God did from him. Here's the picture. All our works, we tend to think wrongly about this. The idea of a Sabbath is you've got your works, your good works, righteous works, that I'm trying to amass. And wonderful, the, the providence of God in the Sunday school this morning, considering what place do our good works have in the kingdom of God? Are our good works meriting something for us? Are they producing something for us? The author of Hebrews says, not at all. Actually, to find rest in Christ means you've stopped working to try to make it. You've stopped trying to access God through your own labors, your own merits. And the irony is that these Jews are missing the Sabbath which had come to give rest to all His people in their crucifixion of Him. Still trying to maintain that Sabbath. To truly keep the Sabbath means to rest from your works. It means you no longer try to earn your way to heaven You no longer measure God's acceptance or love for you on the basis of what you have or have not done. Now, this is something I find troubling and difficult, even as a Christian, and maybe you can relate. That Though I might say, I was converted to Christ, I became a Christian, not because of good works I had done, but by looking to Jesus and believing what He accomplished. God loves me through His Son. He's forgiven me through His Son. I'm saved. Glory. Hallelujah. And then in experience... I live and try to live the Christian life. I try to walk as God would have me to walk. I try to do what he's called me to do. And I fail and I fail and I fail. And I assume that God's love for me. All of a sudden, though I entered in by faith in the works of another, I think that I'm going to maintain my relationship and right standing with God through my labors, through my good works. God's going to love me on the basis of my good works. The answer, Christian, is do you have rest or not? Rest means you've stopped working in the sense that your labors are not trying to merit a reward. Your labors are not trying to make God's face to smile upon you in a loving way full of affection. They're a response to His smile of love and affection. It's a desire to honor Him, but how prone are we to be discouraged by measuring my failures and thinking they're going to cause God to not love me anymore? Now think of the significance of this idea of the Sabbath. Preparing for the Sabbath in light of our context. What's the last thing we heard Jesus say? The last thing we heard Him say as He gave up His spirit in our previous message. Jesus cries out after taking the sour wine, the vinegar, and says, It is finished. The preparation work is completed. The preparation is done. There's nothing more to prepare. As a matter of fact, the Scripture says of Jesus, A body you have prepared for me. To what end? to go to this cross and accomplish every work needed, everything needed. I say the irony is the Jews are looking for a Sabbath rest all the while crucifying the Lord of the Sabbath. And here's my question. If the author of the Hebrews is telling us that those who have believed on Christ are those who have entered this rest, have you believed? Have you entrusted yourself entirely to the finished work of Jesus And he says to you, even through the author of the Hebrews, today is the day if you have not. Another day will not do. It is today that is the day. That's the irony. Secondly, the hypocrisy. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So we considered the irony seen in their blindness that they don't see Jesus as their Lord of their Sabbath, their rest. Let's consider now the hypocrisy of this request to Pilate. If you didn't know any better, if you hadn't been going through John with me for some years now, then you might assume when these Jews say, break their legs, take them down because we've got a high Sabbath day, you might think that these Jews are legitimately concerned about preparing themselves for the Sabbath. But we ought to know better than this by now. Jesus has already told us back in John 8, that they neither loved Him nor the Father. If you, loved me, if you loved the Father, you would love Me who is sent by the Father, He told us. So they're not loving God as they do this to Jesus. And so it's impossible for anyone, and this applies to us, it's impossible for any person to do anything from a pure heart with righteous motives unless they love God. And I might even argue that even as Christians, nothing we do this side of glory is truly from a pure heart with pure motives. But certainly it's true that these who are disconnected from God because they're disconnected from Christ, that they're not doing what they're doing here from pure motives. And so what is, do you think, the real motivation behind their request? I'm saying it's hypocrisy. What do I mean? Well, in one sense, it's impossible for us to know the specific extent of their twisted motives we can't say exactly the scriptures don't tell us exactly what their motives were here and wanting to bring them down because of the upcoming sabbath but we at least know this in light of what's pictured here we know that these people are not righteous we know that they have unjustly had this righteous man crucified and the scripture tells us that they hated jesus without a cause jesus never did wrong And so we can assume some things about their motives in light of what is told to us. What is that? Well, as long as Jesus' dead corpse hung on this cross, it was a public and visual reminder of their sin against him. And you might say, well, these Romans or these Jews, excuse me, these Jews want the Romans to take the bodies down so they can be clean on their high Sabbath day. That's their argument. But what's the real motive? What's the real reason behind it? Let me suggest it to you this way. That these Romans, they are not going to take these people down off these crosses until they're dead. You understand? This crucifixion was a two to three day event where it takes time for you to die. And they wouldn't take these people down unless they were dead. And these Jews are sick and tired of looking at the, the corpse of the man they have unjustly killed. In addition to this, These high Sabbath days were not only days for a sober-minded contemplation or a religious observance. That was part of it, but you have to understand these high Sabbath days were always couched around a festival time. In other words, a big party, a big religious party. Now you imagine this. How are you going to be able to enjoy this picture where these Pharisees, these Jews, these leaders of the Jews, how are you going to enjoy all the pomp and esteem and celebration and feasting If you're constantly faced with the reality of your wickedness, which has been placarded in front of everybody who enters by. A constant reminder of their sin. And so I ask this, do you suppose there's an application in that for us today? Are you and I not prone to do the same exact thing? To try to suppress our sin, the truth of our sin, in order that we might feel free to enjoy lives in peace? Whenever we sin... Do we not long to have all the evidences of our sin buried out of sight? Take him down. Get them out of here so we don't have to look at them anymore. I've sinned, I've done wrong, and I don't want to look at it. Is that not exactly what David did? We read from Psalm 51 and the call to worship. He calls Bathsheba to him and, and has this adulterous relationship with her. Perhaps rapes her. And then after his sin, she gets pregnant. He tries to cover it all up. Uriah, come home from war. Come, go and spend some time with your wife. Uriah is a good soldier. He says, no, I'm committed to serve God. I'm not going to do that. So he tries to cover it up again. Okay, I'm going to send Uriah to the front lines. Have him killed. I'm going to mask and cover up my sin so I don't have to look at it. Until God comes and says, you know what? You're the man. You're the guilty one. You're the one who has your life owed to me as God for your sin." But we're all prone to this. We want to bury our sin and not bring it into the light because we can't stand to look at it. You see, these people were unwilling to go on facing the evil they had done. And I ask, what about you? We continue in the text down to verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. So here, as we continue the thought, this breaking of the legs is the mechanism whereby they're trying to get these people taken off the cross. They don't have to look at them anymore, particularly so they don't have to look at Jesus anymore. Break their legs. Why do they do that? Well, as I told you before, these Romans would not take a person down who had been condemned to death by crucifixion unless they were in fact dead. And I told you that could take up to two or three days. So why is it that they would break their legs? Well, the primary cause of death for a person who was crucified was the asphyxiation that they would suffocate because you've got all the weight of your body and all the strain of being nailed to this beam tugging down on you, collapsing your lungs, and you can't breathe whenever have you ever had a strong pressure on your chest. Even if you're wrestling with somebody and you have a weight on top of you, it's hard to breathe. Your lungs are compressed. Well, in that way, the lungs get compressed in crucifixion and the only way to breathe is to push and strain up with your feet and you can get a little breath and then back down again. And someone could go on doing this for two to three days. Every once in a while, they take a breath out, excruciating pain. Take a breath out, excruciating pain. This constant, repeated, repeated cycle. So they come along and break their legs so that they can no longer lift up, so that they would suffocate. This is the way crucifixion worked. As long as they could lift up with their legs, they'd live longer. But when they broke their legs, they couldn't breathe any longer. And the way they would break their legs, as I understand it, was rather brutal. They would take a kind of hammer, maybe more like a mace, and they would repeatedly bash the kneecap and the shins until those bones shattered. It's a horrible, horrible thing to imagine. And then as soon as you've got nothing but shattered bones in your legs... You're not lifting yourself up anymore and you're going to suffocate quickly. That's what they're proposing to have done. And evidently we read they, get, they went and did this to the first and to the other one who was crucified with Him. Look ahead with me to verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that He was already dead, they did not break His legs. Now let's be clear about something. It's not as though the soldiers had made this Cosmic oversight here when they see that Jesus is already dead. These soldiers, these Roman soldiers, they had perfected torture and death almost to an art form. These were experienced, hardened soldiers. They'd seen death. They knew when someone had died. And as demonstrated in these other two men, they didn't hesitate to break their legs. It's not like they got squeamish when they got to Jesus all of a sudden. They knew when a person was dead or not. And they knew that he was still alive. Now, does it strike you as odd that Jesus died before the other two? Maybe, perhaps, it might have caused you to think, well, perhaps Jesus was somehow weaker physically or unable to bear pain as much as the other two. Why is it that Jesus died before the other two? What is the explanation for Jesus dying first? Well, consider again with me from John chapter 10, verse 17 through 18. Jesus has told us, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And so without in any way minimizing the physical suffering or the agonizing death that Jesus endured on the cross, At the hands of evil men, we've also got to recognize this. Jesus died because he intended to die. Jesus gave up his life. No one took it from him. And he gave it up after accomplishing exactly what the Father had sent him to accomplish. This is what distinguishes Jesus. It's not that he was somehow or another was weaker physically or was less of a man or something like that. Here's the picture as excruciating as that physical death was, and as necessary as it was that He have bloodshed. There's no forgiveness or remission of sins without the shedding of blood. He had to die physically. And as gruesome as that is, what He really came to accomplish, what was even above and beyond the physical suffering, had been fulfilled in Jesus. That which the Father gave Him to do was accomplished. And that is why He died before the other two. What is it that he came to accomplish? What was it? Continue with me to verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. Now I mentioned before, these soldiers, they have a trained eye. They recognize when someone's dead. And they'd already observed with their expert opinions that Jesus was truly dead. They knew he was dead. And you can hear people talk about this. Even people i have heard of hospital chaplains and even military chaplains. That whenever someone's at the end of life, you can tell. It's almost like a difference in the room or the circumstances when someone dies. You're aware of death when you see it, when you've seen it enough. Well, these people would have been like that. But even though they were so certain and experts in their ability to recognize death, they're also efficient. They also were those who would make sure their task was completed in full. This soldier who thrust the spear into Jesus' side was not going to have it said of him that he almost killed Jesus. The kind of consequences for a a mishap like that would have been his own life. And so it's not as though Jesus wasn't actually dead. And this man, though he knew that Jesus was truly dead, cast the spear, thrust it into his side in order to ensure that he was in fact dead. And he was in fact dead one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Now I ask, what is the significance of this statement? Why is it, do you suppose, that John is determined by the leading of the Holy Spirit to include this, and at once there came out blood and water? Surely he could have just said, well, the man put a spear in his side and he didn't move. So we knew he was dead. John says, no. At once, blood and water came out. Blood and water rushed forth. It's as though there's some specific, particular reason for him mentioning this. Now, John, as I understand it, was not a medical man. He was an ignorant, unlearned fisherman. John didn't know medical. Now, if Luke would have been the one recording this, we might have said, well, Luke, the physician, he has some stuff to tell us. He knows why this is important. John, not a medical man, and I certainly am not a medical man, but evidently, The immediate, he says, and at once, evidently the immediate flow of blood and water was a known indication that someone had already died. Death was not going to be the result of this spear in his side. The spear in the side is the indication of the fact that he's already dead. And this is what we need to understand. It seems that this spear in the side satisfied any question the soldiers might have had as to whether Jesus was dead or not. It doesn't say they put the spear in him, the blood and water came out, and then they continued jabbing him just to make sure. No, when the water and blood came out together, it was an indication to them he is in fact dead. And there's no need to do anything else, he's certainly dead. Now, in light of that, done some research, and if you're a medically minded person, Brie, inform me about this afterwards if you have more to add. But according to those I've read after, one being the great, late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Those who are medically trained have suggested this, that for blood and water to come out by this spear was most unusual in light of what happened. And perhaps this unusual blood and water coming out is part of why John has included this in his account. As I understand it, there is a protective sac around the human heart known as the pericardium. This protective sac would have had this clear fluid or water is what it would have been described as here by John. Clear fluid inside this sac, And evidently it's supposed to kind of, well, make it a, a not as an abrasive thing whenever the heart beats. I don't know if that's a right or not way of explaining it, but here's the point. You have this sac around the heart with this fluid in it. And in order for the fluid, this watery liquid, and the blood to come out at once together... It has to only be the result of a ruptured heart. His heart literally burst in his chest. Now, what an odd thing to say. He literally died of a broken heart. And the interesting thing about this medically is this. Crucifixion should not have produced a ruptured heart. Crucifixion should not have caused his heart to burst. And it was unlikely, if not impossible, that someone should have a ruptured heart as they're being crucified. And some have suggested that this spear perfectly went up between the ribs so that no ribs were broken. Remember, no bones are broken. The spear perfectly went up, poked the heart through this pericardium, and that's why this comes out. But what seems to be more indicated, as I understand it, is this ruptured heart had already taken place. And whenever they come out together, it's through the hole in the side that they're draining out of from within his chest cavity. Now, I say again, I'm not... A medical man, I don't know and I can't validate these things. But let me suggest this to you. That with or without this medical explanation, I believe the Scriptures themselves speak to us concerning the reality of what Jesus is enduring on this cross. In other words, we don't have to guess. You don't have to be medically trained or an expert to understand these things. The Scriptures themselves are sufficient. How so? The Word of God explains to us exactly why it was that Jesus died before these other two and what was being accomplished in His death. You've heard it once before. Listen again with intent ears from Isaiah chapter 53. Think about this in light of what He is enduring here and what relationship this has to us. Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 12. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. Pause for a moment. Here's this hiding. Get his face out of my sight. Take him down off of there. Whether or not that's an accurate application of that text, maybe not, but seems fitting. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. By oppression and judgment, He was taken away. And as for His generation, who considered that He was cut off out of the land of the living. There you have it. Cut off out of the land. He's no longer alive as He's on this cross. They saw He was cut off from the land of the living. Stricken for the transgression of My people. And they made His grave with the wicked and with a rich man in His death. By the way, we'll go on to consider that next week with this Joseph of Arimathea. A rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By His knowledge shall the righteous one, My servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide a portion with the many, and He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because He poured out His soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It was not only... The physical agonies of the crucifixion that Jesus was enduring, and I'm arguing blood and water came out because as He's enduring the wrath of God, it was the Lord who crushed Him. As He's being crushed, not only is there this physical weight upon Him, but also this spiritual weight within His very heart reflected in His physical heart rupturing. What authority do I have for suggesting something like that? Listen to this from Psalm number 69. Just think about this. I'm saying the Son of God died of a broken heart. His heart was broken spiritually, manifested physically, and it was for His people under the wrath of God. Look with me at Psalm number 69. Listen to this. You can go and read the entire Psalm and see how it's pointing to Jesus Christ, but listen to this. Psalm number 69, just look verse 16 forward. The psalmist prays. In light of Christ who would come, he prays, Answer me, O Lord, for Your steadfast love is good. According to Your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not Your face from Your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. You see the connection here? Did we not just see recently when Jesus cries out and says, I thirst, it's in fulfillment of Psalm 69. and In the same text we find it's reproach that's broken my heart. And here Jesus on the cross, after He's died, they find out His heart was broken. It ruptured. It literally broke. What does this have to do with us? The reproaches of evil men. And as we've seen and heard the feeling of forsakenness by the Father, broke his heart. And as I'm suggesting, this spiritual reality was so intense. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's such an intense emotion that it manifested in the literal and physical rupturing of his heart. Consider again from the call to worship this expression. And this text hit me with fresh weight than it ever had before in studying for this message. From Psalm number 51, just listen to verses 16 and 17. Oftentimes we're inclined to apply this to our own attitude towards God in our, in our repentance. And that's true. But think about this. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise what is it that pleases the father this sacrifice of a broken heart it pleased the Lord to crush him we find you see there is one sacrifice that the father is pleased to look upon there is one sacrifice which is truly able to satisfy divine wrath and every other sacrifice that's ever been commanded by God or given by men was pointing to this one the broken heart of the Son of God. And I ask, what was the cause of this broken heart? We've read of reproaches. We've read of different reasons we might assume this forsakenness from God. What is the scriptural explanation for the broken heart of the Son of God? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, He, being God the Father, made Him, being Jesus Christ, for our sake He made Him, To be sin who knew no sin. So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. I'll tell you what broke his heart. To have all the vile blackness of our guilt and shame laid upon Him. For Him to be made sin and treated as guilty, though He never once sinned. It broke his heart. It broke his heart to be treated by the Father. The One in whom He loved and delighted. As though He were guilty as a consequence for bearing our guilt and shame. I submit to you that the one thing which must have broken the heart of Jesus Christ the most was to undergo the fierce hatred of the one whose affection He had always known. Jesus did not become unrighteous on the cross. He remained spotless, but He was treated as though He were not. There was nothing within the frame of Jesus Christ that should have been expecting what He received according to what He had done. The the idea that this perfect triune relationship would have a sense, a feeling, and we'll be careful here because we don't want to go further than the Scriptures, but this feeling of forsakenness from the One He most prized, the One He most loved. His heart was broken. You see, we are often prone to imagine that the worst thing about our sin. What do you think it is? If I were to ask you individually, what's the worst thing about your sin? Some of you might perhaps, what's the worst thing about a sin the sin of someone who's not a Christian? We'll put it that way. What is it about the person who's unconverted? What is it about their sin that most grieves you? Many of us might say, well, that sin's going to send them to hell. They're going to suffer forever because of that sin. You know, I don't think that's the right answer. That's a true answer, but it's not the ultimate answer. The worst thing about our sin, without in any way making light or lessening God's expression of wrath or of hell, let me suggest to you this. The worst thing about your sin is that it puts you in a place of rebellion and opposition to God. Have you ever repented of your sin because it breaks your heart that you're estranged from and forsaken by God because of it? The worst thing about the unbeliever's sin is that it has them in a position of being separated from the God they were made to know and love. They're separated from Him. They need to be reconciled to Him. Yes, hell's on the line. But hell exists because God is just. And we were meant to know and have this communal relationship to Him. And here the Son of God is having that relationship, at least it appears to us for a moment in time, interrupted. There's something between them. Now, what do we say about this? I charge you again, don't go further than the Scriptures, but don't undermine it either. You see, to put it simply, Jesus Christ, His heart was broken because of sin and at least this feeling of separation from the love of God. And it is quite amazing. That when he was pierced in this state, even after he's died, outflows both blood and water. Then the Lord looks at you and I and what does he say? On one occasion, the night before, this very night before, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it. Remember my death. This has to do with your, the forgiveness of your sins, this blood coming out. What else does he tell us? Be baptized, every one of you name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins you see blood and water both wrapped up in this reality of your sins being dealt with both external signs which represent the washing away they don't wash it away communion table does not wash away sin neither does baptism but they represent it because they're both related to this Jesus blood and water spilled that we might be covered and forgiven I mentioned in the Sunday school and I can't recall who said this but it's good That even my tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. This is what He's doing. His death bringing us life. So here's my question. How certain can you be that these things I'm telling you are true? How certain can you be? Are you confident here today that your sins are really forgiven? Are you confident that you've been reconciled to God? And the way you can know that you've been reconciled to God is you have been restored to relationship with God. If all you're doing is walking around with this sense of, I'm forgiven, I don't have to worry about my sin anymore, but there's no living relationship with the living God. Jesus did not die on the cross simply that you would be forgiven, but that you would be reconciled, restored to the living God. Are you walking with Him? How can you have confidence that these things are true? John tells us verse 35, he who saw it, John, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. In our conference, we heard a lot about evidence, didn't we? And we heard abundantly clearly told to us from the scriptures that no one's going to believe only because of evidence. And we saw even as a follow-up and a conclusion of those thoughts on Sunday morning last week from Brother Paul, he told us there is this more clear Word which has been given to us in the Scriptures. This Word which is able to bring us to a knowledge of the truth. Not only condemn us, but bring us to Christ in His Word. Here we see John uniting those two things together. He was an eyewitness. Here's evidence. He's got this testimony and yet... The testimony he gives is not only evidence, it's the Word of God. It's the Spirit of God moving him to say these things. You recall we started this series in John's Gospel by looking at the very last, or one of the last uh, verses towards the end in John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, These things I've written to you that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The source of your confidence must be. His Word. John's telling us this written testimony before God is true that you may believe He was there. He's not lying. Do you believe according to this Word? I know some may hear what I'm saying and they may doubt or mock or say, well, that's not right or it's not fair. That's cosmic child abuse. What happened to Jesus there? My question is, has your soul been convinced by the testimony of God's Word? Do you believe it? Have you personally come to rest in this one true Sabbath? The one who says, I finished it, your works, unnecessary. I've done it all for you already. My heart was broken that yours may be healed. That's what he's saying to you today. Have you come to rest in these things? And then after giving us this appeal, And this is how come we know that John's appealing to the Scriptures that are being written and not only just the evidence of what he saw. That's part of it. But it's culminated ultimately in the Word is because John goes immediately on to reference two Scriptures being fulfilled. In this wonderful, God says, I've said it. I've said what I'm going to do. Then I did it. And this ought to show you in your heart that it is so. Verse 36, For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled not one of his bones will be broken. The certainty of John's appeal to us today is not rooted in the wisdom of men, but in the power of a sovereign God in human history. You see, John's telling us, God said, I'm going to do this, and then He does it exactly the way that He said He was going to do it. God's Word is the standard. It's the test. What do we mean? Well, not one of his bones will be broken. Consider with me first from Exodus chapter 12. Here's where we have this institution of this Passover that they're supposed to be celebrating here. This this one on this high day of preparation. Here's this Passover. Exodus chapter 12. Listen to verses 43 through 46. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is brought that is bought for money may eat of it after you've circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Here's a Passover lamb. Here's one that, by whose blood, you're going to be overlooked and have your sins overlooked and forgiven. No bones broken. You look forward to Numbers chapter 9. Numbers chapter 9, verses 9 through 14. Here we hear the same thing. It's as though God had a purpose all these years ago that was coming to be perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Numbers chapter 9, verse 9. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If any one of you or of your descendants is unclean, through touching a dead body, or as on a long journey, he shall still keep the Passover to the Lord. Pause, isn't that interesting? These Jews are worried about being unclean because of a dead body. And they're completely missing this Passover. Completely missing it. Completely missing the true Sabbath. Or as on a long journey, he shall still keep the Passover to the Lord. In the second month, on the fourteenth day, at twilight, they shall keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones. According to all the statute for the Passover, they shall keep it. I'm not supposed to break a Passover lamb's bones. God was very clear. Here the one true Passover who can make clean from dead bodies. And his bones are not broken. Now do you suppose that it's just some cosmic coincidence that they didn't break any of his bones? Some atheists try to argue and say, well, when you see prophecies fulfilled in the Scripture, it's because they heard those prophecies and then went and actively did things to make sure they're fulfilled. Are you out of your mind to think that? You really think these Roman soldiers are trying to fulfill Jewish Scriptures? That they didn't break His bones? As a matter of fact, the charge was go break the legs to make sure they're dead. And they don't break the legs. What's the cause of this? God was ruling In the hearts of wicked men, even as they were doing wicked things. Is it a miraculous thing that even as they stuck the spear into him, it didn't break a bone off on accident? As someone who likes to hunt deer or catch fish, when you're cleaning a deer or fish, there are times when you accidentally break a bone off, messing with something. You're not even trying to. And yet, in the perfect providence of God, not a single bone was broken. Not a coincidence. This Jesus is the one true Passover Lamb and He has fully prepared for His people this rest by accomplishing once and for all the sacrifice required, not having a single bone broken. And We look at verse 37 and again another Scripture says, they will look on Him whom they have pierced. Again, John would have us to see the sovereign hand of God. Was it possible that this soldier not pierce Jesus side? What would you say about that if all of a sudden there were some miraculous thing where this guy doesn't pierce him and then the scripture is not fulfilled? No, he would. How is it that this works? Again, this soldier is not trying to go and fulfill scripture in doing this. It was God who was fully and finally accomplishing the salvation he had promised. This is a quote taken out of Zechariah 12, verse 10, which says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Now, without ruffling any eschatological feathers, How do we deal with this? Because there are some who, according to, and there are many well-known Bible scholars who will suggest that this Scripture from Zechariah has not been finally fulfilled. How do we respond to that? If you're one who does believe that, how do I respond to you today in light of our text? Well, this is it. John tells us that this Scripture was fulfilled in John 19. The piercing of the Son of God happened once and forever and it will not happen again. That's what it means that this is fulfilled. In an ultimate, you you cannot argue that. The Scripture is fulfilled. He was pierced. Now, where the discussion may come in is what's it going to look like when people look on Him whom they've pierced? Is that something that's going to happen particularly with the Jews? Is it something that's going to happen for all Christians? How is that going to be? And, And granted, there may be some room for discussion there. But regardless of those things, God's Word reveals to us the perfect fulfillment of Scripture and Jesus being pierced. And yet, I believe there is a hopeful expectation for a fulfillment which is yet to come in light of this text. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 refers to this exact same text from Zechariah with a little bit different application than you might at first think says, Behold, Jesus says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him, even so. Amen. Here's my conclusion. And this, I trust, is going to drive us straight through to a proper view of Christ that is supreme over any end times thoughts that we might have is this. This is once and for all taking place in the cross of Jesus Christ and there's not another fulfillment of this taking place in the Messiah outside of what's happened here. And here's my question. That text in Revelation seems to indicate that this seeing of Him whom they have pierced, all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. His coming with the clouds. It does sound very much indeed to be a testimony of coming judgment. That there will be judgment against any and all who have not yet bowed to this one who was pierced. And our prayer, that until that day comes, that people from every tribe, nation, and tongue come to see Jesus whom we've pierced according to our sin and believe on Him. That as our hearts are broken by His death, that we would see there's forgiveness because His heart was broken for us. That every person would see and come to know and believe that. And if that day, that great day, that final day comes and finds you not believing in Him, according to Revelation, great will be your wailing and greater still the judgment of God against those who are not trusting Christ. I have a closing thought. Let me ask you this. Has your heart been broken by the testimony of Christ's death? I'm not asking you if you agree that you've sinned. I'm not asking you if it bothers you that you've sinned, especially if it's because of the consequences of sin. I'm asking you this. Does it bother you in your soul that your sin against God is against God? Does it bother you at that level? Does it bother you that your relationship to God is not what it should be? If you come to see separation from God is the most horrible thing there is. And I ask what hope is there for you? There's a Scripture I intentionally skipped in our dealing today which is also referenced and fulfilled here by Jesus' bones not being broken from Psalm number 34. And I'll turn your attention there before we move to close. Psalm number 34. Listen to this. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord, and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. O fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days, that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Now, that is an encouraging word to me. The Lord is near. To the broken hearted. Jesus came to heal the broken hearted. And if you've never been broken hearted because of your sin against God. You have no idea the kind of healing that Jesus came to bring. If you think that means financial or physical material healing. You, you don't have a clue. He's come to heal the broken hearted. And the way in which he's done that is by having his own heart broken as He suffered and died under the wrath of His Father. And the charge to us all is to repent and believe in this Savior. Rejoice that there is a day coming when we will in fact see Him riding those clouds of heaven. Coming to establish His kingdom eternally so, where righteousness will dwell without end. That He is returning for that very reason. And until that day comes, we pray that all, peoples, all tribes, nations, and tongues. Everyone who is set apart for the Son by the Father would come to see Jesus Christ and be saved. I pray this encourages your soul and that as you ponder and think on what Jesus did and the testimony of His death, you would be assured of this. It was not in vain. It was according to to all the Father had given Him to accomplish, and He accomplished it in full. We're going on in the next message to consider His burial. Something I find interestingly may at times be overlooked. We always will emphasize the crucifixion and we'll emphasize the resurrection, but even Paul in his concise exclamation of the, or ex, explanation of the gospel says that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried, and then rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And so, by the Lord's grace and mercy, we'll go on to consider the significance of His burial, what that means for us. So with that, I'll ask you to go ahead and bow with me and we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You that You have a tender heart towards those who have broken hearts. That You are able to restore and heal and fix that which is broken in us, namely our sin. Father, I pray that You would help us to continue to meditate on these things and to long after You and Your Word and love more and more Your Son Jesus Christ to be conformed to His image. Father, I praise You for Your goodness to us. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.